Welcome to Escape Routes with Condé Nast Traveller. My name is Melinda Stevens, the Editor-in-Chief of Condé Nast Traveller US and Condé Nast Traveller UK, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our podcast series. Travel is all about storytelling, a story of a place, of its people, of a journey, and at Condé Nast Traveller we've always celebrated the most transportative, evocative travel writing. With much of the world currently grounded, we've come together to take you to some of our favourite places, if only in your imagination, by listening to our most loved travel stories read aloud by the writers who penned them. We hope these short escape routes allow you to daydream of far-flung adventures, discover the world's curious corners or recast familiar destinations in a fresh light, and that you love these travel stories as much as I do. Hello, my name is Nina Kaplan. Welcome to Condé Nast Traveller's Escape Routes. I will be reading my piece on Mornington Peninsula, Melbourne's weekend playground, which featured in the October 2015 issue of Condé Nast Traveller magazine. I hope you enjoy it. Melbourne has a secret. Actually, Melbourne has many secrets. Its best bars, shops and restaurants are hidden away, behind anonymous doors and up concealed staircases. But nothing is quite so carefully tucked out of sight as the Melburnians' weekend playground, an hour south of the city, the delicious beaches and tree-lined vineyards of the Mornington Peninsula. I've been coming here since the 1970s, About the same time, my Melbourne relatives realised that the old money was clustered out on the furthest point at Portsea and Sorrento, leaving the rest of the peninsula, orchards and wide sun-dappled roads fringed with pale-barked gum trees and pervaded by amber butterflies and the clear scent of eucalyptus, for newcomers. And soon they began looking at their new land and empty wine cellars and wondering whether the former couldn't be used to fill the latter. Elsewhere in Australia, thirsty Swiss-German immigrants planted vines enthusiastically and successfully as soon as they landed in the 19th century. In Mornington, however, the first English arrivals to attempt winemaking, the Balcombs, at a property called the Briars, were so unsuccessful that their short-lived output was nicknamed Briars Vinegar. That was in the 1850s. Over 100 years later, Some of those Melbourne escapees tried again, deciding that the area's cool climate was perfect for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, the grapes of Burgundy or Champagne. Unlike Mornington, neither of those well-known regions has water on three sides. In fact, both are landlocked. Nor does their limestone soil resemble ancient volcanic granite. And neither has ever been in much danger of bushfires or vine damage by kangaroos. So it's no surprise that Mornington Peninsula's wines didn't turn out French at all. 
Nevertheless, those winemakers were soon talking up the area as the Burgundy of the Southern Hemisphere. And, being Australians, no sooner did they begin making decent wine than they opened restaurants alongside the vineyards to drink it in, which was handy for visitors, but may not have helped the area's identity crisis. Burgundy has great restaurateurs and great winemakers. They are not the same people. My first experience of the peninsula was naked in an oak barrel. I was five. My father's cousins had spent their time planting vines instead of building a swimming pool, so they'd filled a barrel with water and were oak-aging the children alongside their wines. By the time I had grown too big for that barrel, the early adopters had been joined by various other wineries, and farm gate stores, restaurants and delis were springing up like the patches of wild mushrooms that knowing locals hunt down, then jealously guard each autumn. At lunch in the glass-walled cellar door restaurant of the Peringa estate, its owner Lindsay McCall recalls those early days. There were only about six of us making wine then, he says wistfully, as we inhale his aromatic, blackcurrant and peppery 2009 Peringa Shiraz with the pinkest slice of grass-fed sirloin. McCall might lament that now he can't even get a table in his own restaurant on a Saturday night, but the fact that the peninsula's food scene is catching up with the wine is good news for everyone else. Peringa has a chef hat, the Australian equivalent of a Michelin star, and there are a handful of other hatted restaurants nearby. Ten minutes by tractor, where the vegetables are grown down the road and the kangaroo is served en croute with tarragon emulsion. And Polperro, where diners wash down fine modern Australian dishes with wines that started life on the vines just beyond the tables. Many of the other winery restaurants, Montalto, Yabby Lake, are sophisticated too. But even then, there's none of the folded napkin superiority of French fine dining which may be why Australia has never opened its doors to the Michelin Guide. In fact, Mornington's soil has been as fruitful for its food scene as it has for its winemakers. There is a farmer's market in almost every small town. Hot Melbourne chefs nip down weekly to forage for ingredients or buy supplies between a spot of surfing. Even the breweries and cider makers serve good food. At Red Hill Brewery, the barbecues are laden with beef brisket and pulled pork, and the cider lounge at Mock Red Hill Orchards serves platters of local produce and cheese. Perhaps it's a hangover from the first fleet, back in New South Wales in 1788, almost starving to death. Or maybe it's just that the Mornington Peninsula is such a great place to grow, cook and serve food, but nobody here seems able to do anything without throwing in a meal alongside. One rare exception is Aaron Drummond of Circe Wines. But then, his tasting room is a barrel and two stools, so dinner would be a stretch. He is one of Australia's freshest crop of winemakers, still working in a big Yarra Valley winery while he pursues his dream down here in his free time. It may not be paying the rent yet, but his Pinot is some of the brightest I've ever had, and like its maker, says nothing about Burgundy. The people who really did come down here and see something familiar were not French or English, but the Greeks and Italians who, after arriving in Melbourne after World War II, 
took their families to the tumble-down streets and west coast beaches of Dramana. These days, Dramana is a lot smarter, says John Filiopoulos, and he is one of the people making that happen. Greek-Australian himself, he is co-owner of Dee's Kitchen, a stripped-back, laid-back cafe five minutes from the beach, with Dee Busani Caliguri, who was originally Israeli. Two new-fledged Australians, far from their native Mediterranean, making great food by a rather different sea. Dee's could be a beach cafe except for the heaving wine shelves that decorate the distressed walls. Or perhaps, I think, tucking into squeaky fresh trout and local beetroot dill and peas on homemade toast, Mornington Peninsula just has a better class of calf. As I eat, Gary Crittenden walks in. Another of the region's wine pioneers, he picked up on that Mediterranean vibe. At their lakeside winery, the Crittendons make light, easy-drinking Italian whites, Vermentino and Pinot Grigio, as well as Italy's great reds, Sangiovese and Nebbiolo, which is the greatest variety in the world, according to Crittenden. Others are catching on, but the region won't be giving up on French varieties anytime soon. Some plants, like some people, move easily between places. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are called international varieties for a good reason. But these transplants don't stay the same. The avocados and cherries they grow in Mornington Peninsula's cool pine forests are richer and riper than their old-world forebears. They have adapted to a jutting slice of land that varies from forest to orchard to vineyard to surf-swept beaches thick with wattle and tea tree scrub, just as the people have both in accent and in understanding of their land. My next stop, Port Phillip Estate, is a transplant if ever there was one. From the outside, it's an uncompromising wall of rammed earth. Once inside, the whole curved inner wall is glass and the vineyards unfold before you. Waking in one of the elegant suites and looking out on that sweeping view was such a joy that I wondered why the Burgundians had never tried something like this but the sensibility is entirely different. For Australians, the pleasures of the table should be shared as widely as possible. The expansiveness of New World hospitality seems to suit a place so generously endowed with space. On my last day, I walk up to Arthur's Seat, the highest point of the peninsula, and look out beyond Romana across to the Bellarine Peninsula, which comes round to meet the tip at Portsea like arms encircling Port Phillip Bay. It's a spectacular view, with woolly dark trees jostling low-lying buildings and the water shining blue between the embrace of the bay's coastline. Turn south, though, and there's nothing but Tasmania between here and Antarctica. I feel a moment's pity for those first English settlers, homesick travellers who couldn't even make decent wine to take the edge off their longing for the old country. Instead, they named their towns for England's south coast, Shoreham and Rye and Hastings, an exercise in magical thinking even more wishful 
than trying to reimagine this fertile strip as a new world Burgundy. But why bother with comparisons? You don't see the Burgundians hankering after beaches, avocado groves and pickled daikon. The only way in which this place really needs to copy the French is by shrugging off comparisons and enjoying being a wine and food lover's nirvana, and an entirely Australian one at that. This podcast was brought to you by Tourism Australia. Once travel restrictions are relaxed, there will once again be many flights available from the UK to Melbourne, with a single stopover en route. There are also domestic flights to Melbourne from all other Australian cities. The Mornington Peninsula is Melbourne's playground for good reason. It's just an hour's drive south from the metropolitan attractions of central Melbourne to this beautiful strip clustered with beaches, restaurants, vineyards and wonderful places to stay. For more information on planning your trip, visit australia.com. We hope you enjoyed our Escape Routes podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to help boost us in the charts and ensure you are the first to hear about new episodes.